Why don't you guys just stay up here and we'll run through that set again. <laughs> See, what they don't realize is that would mean no sermon. <laughs> Got to have a pretty thick skin if you're going to be a pastor. That's all I could say. <laughs> You are evil, wicked people. <laughs> Saved by grace, but nevertheless. <clears throat> Anybody remember the name of Enron? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully <clears throat> you didn't have your investments in the Enron Corporation. Kenneth Lay founded Enron in 1985. It was a merger of his creation between Houston Natural Gas and a company called InterNorth, and he turned it into a multi-billion dollar corporation. Not far into the development of that company, he brought on the best help that he could find. He brought on a man to be CEO by the name of Jeffrey Skillings and Andrew Fastow as the chief financial officer. Each of these individuals in their own right, just by their, their natural business savvy, their talent, their ability, were gifted businessmen, and they could have easily gone out on their own and become millionaires in legal pursuits just on their own talent. Instead, they raised up a corporation of executives who were skilled in creative financial accounting, as it became known hiding billions, not millions, but billions of dollars in debt that the company actually had, and it brought the company down, and many, many thousands of people and employees who had their life savings in their company had nothing, and those three men ended up going to jail. What's the moral of the story? It is that bright, intelligent talented people can still do amazingly foolish things. Jephthah, an individual that we've been reading about in the book of Judges, was another bright, intelligent, talented individual. And his attempt at a reasoned approach with the Ammonite leader falls flat for the reasons that I've talked about over the past several weeks concerning the century old, centuries-old situation in the Middle East. If latitudes and longitudes were truly what was at issue in Jephthah's day, as it is even right now, today, between Israel and the misleadingly named Palestinians, a reasoned approach might provide a solution. But in Jephthah's day, just as now, we have to remember the words of Paul, who wrote to the church at Ephesus, writing, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Those are all the, 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 the translation from the Greek kind of loses its, its force upon us. But Paul was referring to the reality of spirit beings, namely demons, 
that we're really behind all the things that we see as just going on in everyday affairs as being sort of the normal things that go on in life. But this verse that he gives the Ephesians and us was loaded, trying to get us to see that, yes, right up front, it looks like our struggle is against other people or other powers when they are, in fact, in the ultimate sense, they are against the world or the spirit realm of demons, which Paul refers to here, and of angels, which the writer of Hebrews refers to in chapter 1 of that book. Now, a secular world scoffs at such a suggestion. And Bill Nye may shake his head till it comes off. But national discourse, uh, sorry, rational discourse and logical argumentation are of no value against the spiritual powers of darkness, which is why the most reasonable, the most factual rebuttal of any kind of dispute is powerless and goes nowhere when the forces of our, when the forces of evil are what is fueling the situation. And this is true whether we're talking to a secretary of state or a secretary of a local school. The theme of Judges, as we've seen repeatedly, is that when God's people are in rebellion against God Almighty, God will and does use spiritual forces working through people and working, as I said, through everyday situations to call his people back to himself. And this is an enduring principle. This is the eternal principle that is in operation on a grand scale, like at a national level. But it's also at work on the individual level when any of God's children are in rebellion. The Old Testament is a living example of this in action over and over and over again. And while, again, I could turn to so many of the historical record, uh, stories that are recorded for us in the Old Testament, just for one example, in Numbers chapter 32, the background is, is that the people of God are getting ready to finally enter the promised land by God's direction. But the people of God are balking at God's plan for them concerning entering and living successfully in the land of promise. And God patiently spells his plan out again for them, saying, look, here's how it's going to be. Your choice is to do it my way or your way. Well, in verse 23 of Numbers 32, Moses, who is speaking for the Lord, says, but if you will not do it my way, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. In the revised Cripe version, it means we are all free to reject God's purposes for our lives. But it will come back to bite us sooner or later. We cannot fool God. Our sin will find us out. And by the way, parents... That be sure your sin will find you out is a great prayer to pray for your children, especially as they get older into those teen years where they have more freedoms and more liberties and more ability to do things they shouldn't do and to deceive the parents. Time and again, not to the point of obnoxiousness, I don't think. 
I would remind our children of what I pray for them. Be sure your sin will find you out. Oh, you can pull the wool over mom and dad's eyes to be sure, but not him. Go have fun. (laughs) That's for what it's worth. No charge for that. So let me just repeat, this principle holds true at both the grandest scale, a world scale, a national scale, a community scale, but also at the personal level. And we're seeing it play out at the national level every single day, and we see it play out at the personal level as well. Last, I believe a week ago Friday, Maine's High Court ruled 5-1, to that a public school must allow a fifth-grade boy who identifies as a girl to use the girl's restroom. When a nation or a single person, including one who wears the name of Jesus, flaunts their freedom from God's wisdom for all things pertaining to life and godliness, God allows the foolishness and he allows it and its consequences to escalate. And yes, innocent bystanders are part of the fallout. It rains on the just and the unjust alike, we're told in the New Testament. Many years ago, Focus on the Family produced a video instruction on the real price, and they meant that quite literally, financial terms, the real price of divorce. And the video was very compelling because it had people who had been divorced, that is, they had exercised their solution to their troubled marriage, which, again, was divorce. And now here they were, though, sometime down the road after the fact, telling their story now of what their lives were like, having done it their way. And it was ever so eye-opening. Living by God's solutions to life are much easier and much less painful, which doesn't mean they are easy or pain-free. It means they are easier and less painful. But the better course in any aspect of our lives is to do life God's way. Whether we're talking about marriage, we're talking about finances, we're talking about parenting or dating or working or playing or eating or spending or saving, it doesn't matter what the issue or the topic or the subject matter is. We're talking about all things, as Peter writes, pertaining to life and godliness. But we are all commonly driven by so many illusions of what the good life is and how it's obtained. And so in the course of each one of our individual journeys, we tend to live in light of many of those illusions, sinning against God, defying His instructions and wisdom and counsel for how this life is to be lived. In Judges, God's magnifying glass is on the collective. It's on the group. It's on the people of God called Israel. But the message is still to the individual. And since Judges is the prequel to Chronicles, reading there gives us a preview of what is to come. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, If you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, and you go and serve other gods and worship them, 
Then I will uproot you from my land which I have given you and this house which I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. As for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them from the land of Egypt. And they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the end of this pericope, therefore, meaning in light of everything that I just read preceding it, because of that, he has brought all of this adversity upon them. Last week I mentioned Francis Thompson, whose life was a dismal failure of poverty and uh, opium addiction and a life of ignominy. And yet he's remembered for his poem called The Hound of Heaven. And I read part of that last week, and it's about God's relentless pursuit of those he loves, like a hound on the trail of somebody, pursuing them through the school of hard knocks. We can run from God, but we can't hide. In Judges chapter 11, the hound of heaven is nipping at the heels of the Gideonites under Jephthah's leadership, pursuing his children, trying to bring them back from the brink of self-destruction by means of the waiting, a marauding army of the Ammonites. In Judges chapter 11, beginning in verse 29, this is what we read. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. He struck them with a very great slaughter from Aurora to the entrance of Manit, Twenty cities and as far as Abel Karamim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. Now, let's not lose sight of my thesis in my going a bit far afield here this morning in my getting to this point. And that thesis is again, namely this, that greatness does not preclude foolishness. So let me summarize just in, in a sentence, literally. What's happened here and what's going on? God prepares Jephthah for a rousing victory over the Ammonites. And Jephthah makes a foolish vow before the Lord. The victory is subsequently obtained, and now it's time for Jephthah and others to pay the piper for his foolishness. Now, before I proceed... Remember, part of my the, the, my preaching over the years has been not simply to open your mouths and try and jam some things in there, but it's to demonstrate and model how the Word is rightly divided. That is, how do you read the Bible? How do you study it properly? So I have to say at this point, and this isn't to bore you, 
but it is vitally important. Otherwise, what I say from this point on is merely my opinion and argument by assertion, and it is neither. The Hebrew language, and I'm talking about, you you understand that the Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in is not modern-day Hebrew. The Old Testament Hebrew is a dead language. It is out of existence. It's no longer used. It's, It's vastly different than modern Hebrew. Old Testament Hebrew is, as languages go, is a pretty non-specific language as far as its grammatical ability to communicate ideas. That is, it's rather vague at times, portraying kind of uh, general ideas and thoughts as concepts rather than as detailed specifics. Now, the importance of this is that it makes it very challenging to translators to translate the Old Testament. So just understand that when something that you are reading in the Old Testament kind of shakes you, spins your head around, you know, it's a hard passage, it's like, what? Just realize that while it may sound very cut and dry in the translation that you're reading, it may not be nearly as cut and dry as it really is in the original language. So Jephthah makes this vow on the threshold of war. A vow which in some way, shape, or form, I suppose, is meant to ensure victorious outcome concerning God's people. Such vows are not unusual for the day. But this one would seem not only unnecessary, but also a betrayal of faith in Jehovah. And I say that in light of the vow's connection here with its location with the verse right before it, which tells us that the Spirit of God was upon Jephthah for this battle in verse 29. Let's go back to that verse. Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and he went on to the sons of Ammon. So if we stopped right there at verse 29 and we didn't go any further, we would already be assured that the victory for God's people was already secured. It was already imminent. Because every step of Jephthah's army was being directly guided by the Holy Spirit. That's the point of verse 29. So why this intrusion, as I'll put it. This intrusion of a pre-battle vow. Someone suggests, by someone I mean a scholar, suggests that it may have been for the sake of the troops. That is, Jephthah realizes that, you know, they're going into a battle and, you know, he may have the Holy Spirit on him, etc., etc., but, you know, I'm just going to encourage the troops here and let them see me going and hear me taking this vow and it'll just embolden them for the battle. That is possible, given the nature of the language. Another scholar suggests that Jephthah himself needed or desired some extra insurance, and so Jephthah takes the vow, makes the vow for himself. Again, that's possible. But with the benefit of hindsight that we have in coming to this narrative, I'm going to suggest that 
Jephthah's vow was just a rash and stupid thing to do in a weak human moment. A brilliant guy, a good guy, a talented guy doing something foolish. You see, a vow, again, wasn't necessary because of everything that is wrapped up in verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he went to Ammon. God is all over this. The victory was already in the bag. But the human condition, and I'm talking about our, our call it what you want, our, our human frailty, our sin nature, which is always with us, hopefully in diminishing control of our lives as the Holy Spirit conforms and transforms us, but it's the human condition. And no matter one, what one's level of spiritual maturity might be, it's still subject to doing some foolish things, even profoundly stupid things that have profoundly ugly consequences. In the context of last week's service where we concentrated on the Lord's table and we focused on Paul's insistence on the idea of coming to the Lord's table after self-examination, In doing so, we realize that we all need the Lord's help. No one is above critique, using the language of the writer of Hebrews, before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The human condition. God, God's children, God's people, good people, still are capable of doing sinful things, but Don't forget the fact here that Jephthah is a good guy. Remember, he's named in faith's hall of fame, as it's called, in the New Testament book of Hebrews in chapter 11. A few weeks ago, I pointed that out and talked about that. Jephthah is there memorialized as one of the big wigs of the faith. He was a good guy. But all of us need help. We all need forgiveness. We all need God on our side. We do not outgrow that ever. But what's disturbing to people familiar with this passage that we're in is that as a result of Jephthah's vow, Jephthah sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering to the Lord. And by the way, this is the kind of passage that a college professor loves to get a hold of with very naive, biblically ignorant students in pointing out the absurd, the ridiculous, the ugly about the Bible. People are concerned and worked up about Jephthah offering his daughter as a burnt offering to the Lord. But did he? Did he? Is that what the text tells us? Again, let me just underscore the sometimes vague nature of biblical Hebrew. Verse 31 seems pretty clear. 
Go back to though what I said about when something seems clear in the Old Testament. It seems pretty clear because of our translations, but again, the Hebrew allows for this passage to be understood in various ways, legitimately. Whoever, or in the NAS, it just says, whatever comes out my door when I return will be devoted to the Lord, offering it instead Now, it doesn't say that in the translation. I'm inserting that. Offering it instead of a burnt offering. Or another rendering could say, whoever comes out to meet me will be devoted to the Lord, and in addition to that vow of devoting that one or that thing, whatever it is, to the Lord, I also, in addition to that, will offer a burnt offering. Nevertheless, most people dealing with this passage lean to the fact that, no, Jephthah offered up his daughter as a sacrifice in fire. Okay. Remember the overriding principle of understanding God's word, and that is what? Don't say it. The Bible interprets the Bible. So, let's think in those terms now as we try and wade through this difficult passage. First of all, Jephthah, again, who, remember, is highlighted in Hebrews' Faith's Hall of Fame, would be hard-pressed to think in terms of a human sacrifice expressly going against the Lord's wisdom for life as delineated clearly in Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 12, that somehow thinking that by doing so, that would bring God's favor in the outcome of this battle. Remember, Jephthah had some things, quite a few things, put well together, both concerning their history, the history of the area, and also of Judaism. Let's look at verses 34 to 36. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child, and besides her he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes. Now that's a sign of grief and like, oh no, what did I do? Okay? He tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord concerning his vow, and I cannot take it back. So Jephthah's daughter says to him, My father, you've given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. If Jephthah's daughter knew what her father's vow was, we're not privy in the text to know that, or if she did, how she knew. It may just be that she is affirming her father's stated obligation to fulfill his word regardless of what it was. At any rate, what's important to the story is not that kind of detail concerning the vow, but rather what her reaction is and what Jephthah's reaction is 
and they will both help us understand the details and the proper understanding of the passage. Verse 37, she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Now stay with me. If you have the death sentence on your head, namely being burned alive as an offering, I'm not sure that your last request would be to have time to mourn the fact that you won't be bearing any children. But then verse 38 repeats as if to underscore the very focus of what she is mourning about, which is not a loss of life, but a loss of the opportunity to keep the family name going, which we do not appreciate this today, but it was gigantic in the culture of the day. Verse 39, for the third time in as many verses, it reiterates again the focus of the loss of childbearing due to her father's foolish vow. Now let's look at 39 and 40. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father. So she went off with her companions to do what she said. She returned to her father who did to her according to the vow. How about some details? They're not given, which is why the confusion and the speculation. He did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. If you've been burned and you're dead, I'm straining here to see that as sort of the logical concern or statement. Well, she obviously won't. Smoke's going up. She obviously won't be having any children. Okay? All right. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to, in the NAS, commemorate, this becomes important, to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Now, if Jephthah had just murdered his daughter, which is what it would have been, in an idolatrous act of human sacrifice, it's difficult to marry the next phrase, lamenting her lack of childbearing, mentioned for, again, the third time in three verses. So, my conclusion, which could be wrong. My conclusion is that Jephthah's daughter was offered to the Lord's service, dedicated to the Lord's service, which had obviously social repercussions on her personal freedoms, to be sure but was dedicated to the Lord's service much in the way, if you remember, Hannah dedicated her little boy Samuel to the Lord's service. So it was a bittersweet development. 
Again, you see, the glory of women in the day was being able to multiply the earth. It wasn't, you know, today, you know, childbearing is like, you mentioned to somebody, you've got more than 1.6 children, and they're like, oh, you're one of those earth rapers and pillagers, taking more than you rightly should have. Why are you having all those children? In the day, children were blessing. The one who had his quiver full of them, to use the words of Solomon, was indeed a blessed man. And by the way, a quiver was six. Pastor Brent has arrows all over the place. <laughs> Little side note. But it was a huge deal for a woman to be barren. You read through the scriptures and you find out that barrenness was oftentimes a curse from the Lord as a judgment. And because of Jephthah's rash vow, this privilege was taken away from her for the rest of her life. Now, in the next couple of verses, 39 and 40, the particular translation you are using when studying the Bible becomes very important. This is why when people ask me, well, what's the best Bible to use? Well, first of all, are we talking about just casual reading of the Bible, like in your daily reading, or are we talking about studying the Bible? Listen again to the way it is written in the NAS, New American Standard, which is the one I recommend for Bible study. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Listen now, though, to the way, uh, two other ways of translations and how they interpret this same passage. In the contemporary English version, we read, Then she went back to her father. He did what he had promised, and she never got married. That's why every year Israelite girls walk around for four days weeping for Jephthah's daughter. Now you can see compared to the NAS, there's a lot of liberty been taken there just in the words used to try and give the sense of the Hebrew. That's unavoidable. But I'm just, I'm just throwing that out as again, there's, there's another, you know, little angle on things, and I want to underscore there the idea of weeping for Jephthah's daughter. In the English Standard Version, which I like for daily devotion, you know, devotional time, but not for Bible study. This is what we read in the same passage. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Now, finally, if Jephthah's daughter had been sacrificed on an altar in some demonic ritual sacrifice. Verse 40 makes little sense. In light of Jephthah's daughter's plight, on the other hand, she was admired by the women of the day. Even being given, basically, they created a four-day holiday on her behalf. Specifically, a holiday, go back to the NAS, commemorating... Not weeping for, not lamenting over, but commemorating, which is a word of celebration. 
Not a word of lamentation as you would expect if memorializing a tragic death of the one being remembered. Now you say, well, how does somebody come up with weeping and lamenting and somebody else comes up with commemorating? Again, it is the nature of the Hebrew language. It's not always clear. And while weeping and lamentation are a possible interpretation of the word grouping that the NAS says uses the word commemorating rather than weeping or lamenting, that is celebrating this virtuous woman, you could, but you have to go, how do I explain this? You have to, uh, uh, you go from like what would be the most reasonable, the most common understanding of the word based on the grammar and all concluded there, and then way down here based on this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, it's possible you could turn that into weeping and lamenting. All that is to say is that it, this isn't 100% ironclad. But when you take the preponderance of information of what is being emphasized in three verses in a row about the lack of child rearing, the goodness of the man who Jephthah was extolled in the New Testament for all time and eternity because the word of God will never perish, to think that this guy would offer his daughter up in a demonic ritual of sacrifice just seems to be untenable to the nature of the passage. All right. Somebody inform uh, Children's Ministries that we'll be wrapping up. The question that I was wrestling with more than, than all that other stuff, believe it or not, is remember everything that we read in a historical narrative is nowhere near everything that took place, obviously. But what is there, given our understanding of inspiration, has to be there for very purposeful, specific reasons. I mean, God doesn't use filler, just throw something in here. So you have this whole narrative of this battle and everything else, and then all of a sudden there's this 11-verse passage about Jephthah's vow. My question is, why this intrusion into what is basically... A narrative, a historical narrative of a major battle and victory. I wish that I had a better answer than I have. I will say that, again, even great people make stupid decisions under pressure. Even when God is with that individual, as obviously the Holy Spirit was all over Jephthah. Even when God is propelling that individual into service. But when God is doing so. And see, the advantage we have as New Testament Christians is we have the Holy Spirit abiding with us. That was not so in the Old Testament. God would send the Holy Spirit to come upon a person to do his work and then was gone. Come back again if necessary and then was gone. We have the Spirit living within us if we are Christians, and we have been sealed, the word used in Paul's language, in the, new, in the uh, Holy Spirit. And when that is the case, you don't need anything more. You don't need lucky rabbit's foots, feets. We don't need prayer beads. And we certainly don't need a burnt offering to try and get God to really pay attention to us to get his arm maybe behind his back so that he'll really listen this time and really give us what we want. Jephthah was a great man. 
He's remembered as a great man. He's singled out as a great man. And his daughter, not unlike Isaac, accommodating the father of his, uh, the, 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 accommodating his father, Abraham, who also made a vow to offer his son up as a burnt offering and sacrifice. And I trust you know how that one all ended up. It's not the same story at all. It's not, it's not even analogous in the way that came about. And I'm just saying it took, it took as much faith, maybe more, on Isaac, who was a robust teenager or young man who could have easily said, you're doing what? Aged geriatric father? I don't think so, pal. Right? But he said, don't worry, God will provide a ram. Tremendous faith. Jephthah's daughter, father do to me what is good to do, for God has shown you favor in the outcome of the battle. And because of that, Jephthah's daughter is celebrated for her devotion to the Lord, which is through her devotion, in this case, to her father. She is not lamented posthumously, that means after death, by the daughters of Israel, but rather is an example of faithful devotion to a cause that was obviously much bigger and much greater than herself. If she were a 21st century Christian, I can see her saying, I don't think so, old man. Okay, I have a dream. My dream is to find Prince Charming and to get married and have a house full of kids and to yada, yada, yada. Her was father, you took a vow. And even though the repercussions have spilled upon me, you must keep your word. She deserves celebrating. And Jephthah deserves a smack in the chops. Greatness notwithstanding. Mothers and fathers, are you building into your children the kind of relationship that would cause your children to have that kind of respect for you. And let me tell you the worst way to think you're going to bring that about. Talk about going around the corner. The worst way to bring that about is living as carnally, as basically everybody else you know and that they know, but telling them the right things to do and to think while you are not living them. You can take your respect and you can throw it into the dumpster because that's where it's going to be. So obviously the best way is the opposite of that. It means living what supposedly we believe before your children, for them to see you making decisions that are against your advantage because you are convinced that even though it's against your advantage, it is what the Lord wants in this time and place. And it means taking individual time with them from the time they can crawl, the time they can to, to walk, and from that day on, and pouring your life into them, not en masse, but one-on-one individually. And that takes time. You're saying, boy, you talk a good game. 
Barbara and I did that. We did it by intention. We did it because we were taught to do that when we were baby Christians. It just made sense. And so later on in their teen years, when you get some of those rocky rocky uh, shoals and the, the rough waters and all, if you have that developed relationship of, of love and respect, not agreement, we're talking teenagers here, <laughs> but love and respect, let me tell you, love covers a multitude of sins, both on their part and also on the parents' part. We're not talking about perfect parenting. But we're talking about a love relationship that at the end of the day, even when they are in hot pursuit of their own personal gratifications, which is no different than us, they will realize mom and dad had something different, something special, and it's worth emulating. doesn't mean they're not going to go through rough patches. But if they're going to make it, that is how they will make it. And if you're thinking, well, you know, right now, you know, Johnny or Susie, they're this tall and they're, they're just, I, I can't stand being around them because they're just off the wall and everything else. And I'll wait till they're going to grow out of it. You know, when they get to be uh, like, like 11 and 12 preteens, then, then they'll, I'll be able to contain and control them. And then we can uh, know and they turn to 10, 11, 12 years old, 13 years old. And you find out they're even worse than they were when they were six or seven. And you're like, well, I'll grow that. I'll wait till they're teenagers and they can reason rationally and I can talk with them. And then I'll start working on my relationship. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> it never gets easier than when they are in the crib. <laughs> and you do it from that point on gradually. Make sense? Be sure your sin will find you out, though. Teenagers, oh yeah, let's stand. <laughs> That's also true of parents, though. <clears throat> oh yeah. That's right, isn't it? Dang. Father in heaven, thank you for the examples of real people from real times and places, though separated by centuries. Father, I do pray truly that as parents, the people of faith would truly invest in the lives of tomorrow's church. And Lord, it's not always fun. But it is always so worth it. Lord, thanks for being a patient father to us and a great example of what a good, loving father is like. And help us individually to spend that time with you in your word to see what you are like as the perfect father and how you deal with your children and then seek to emulate that by faith. Thanks for loving us. Amen.